welcome to the second, actually to the third of the T.W. Willingham Preacher of the Year uh, services. If uh, you weren't here last night, let me introduce to you the speaker again. His name is Reverend Charles Tillman. He's a 1982 graduate of Nazarene Bible College. So those of you who are in process, there is hope. There's evidence right here. It's possible to make it through. <clears throat> Inside the bulletin, you'll learn a number of things about, about Reverend Tillman's ministry, about his family. You'll see by his activity, his willingness to do and to serve wherever it is that God calls him to. Uh, he embodies, he incarnates. Um, those of you who have had introduction to the ministry with me, you know what the word means. He incarnates what it means to be a minister of the gospel. Um, we're going to sing some songs. I know you can help me. I don't normally sound like this, but you sound better than I. So if you'll just let it rip, uh, we'll, we'll make that happen. And one more thing before I continue. do need to remind you about T.W. Willingham. He was, uh, his family has um, put together his sponsors, this preaching series. He was a spark plug for the denomination for generations. Uh, anybody that came on under the ministry of T.W. Willingham knew that they had heard from the Lord and never left the same. Uh, he would rearrange your comfort zones. Uh, he would just get all over whatever self-righteous bone you had. Uh, but he would all, always leave you wanting to be more like the Christ that he served too. That, and so I think Reverend Tillman embodies that as well. Search me and know me. Try my thoughts. We want every part of our beings to exalt you, Father. We want every part of our lives to exalt the name of Jesus. We want every portion of our being to exalt Spirit of God at work in us. We know that's what you want for us too. And so we admit it to you boldly that we need your help. We admit it to you boldly that we have a ways to go. We confess our dependency. We confess our expectation. We confess the hope that you have planted within us because of the changes you've already done and because all that you're calling us to. Thank you for this, for this opportunity to meet in your presence. I do want to pray, Jesus, for, for Dan's grandma. He asked me before the service to pray for her, so we pray for her healing. I also pray for the healing for those, those others of us who are part of our lives that, uh, that need your touch. And then I pray for us, would you continue to give us strength, continue to give us endurance. We'll do everything that you ask us to, but we don't want to do it without you. We don't dare do it without your power. So we ask for that. Now help us to hear your word. Help us to hear your spirit. 
help us to hear from you so that everything that we do exalts you. We pray it in Jesus' name, believing. Amen. You may be seated. Why, good evening, NBC. All right, we did a lot better this evening. You knew what I wanted to hear. It's so good to be with you again tonight. Amen. I feel much better and much more alive than I did yesterday after that long travel day. I want you to turn with me tonight to the 10th chapter of Luke, beginning with verse 30. I believe that those who have looked at some of the flyers, uh, notes around campus, have already had an opportunity to look at our text. But here we look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. 10th chapter of Luke, beginning with the 30th verse. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And then Jesus poses the question, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man? I want to talk to you tonight from this topic, prerequisites for a change. Prerequisites for a change. A few years back, I was privileged to be a part of a conference that uh, was hosted by an organization that I was working for at the time. I've been a, uh, a pastor, bivocational pastor, for several years. I was in education for about 15 years, uh, starting from a recruiter all the way up to uh, VP and enrollment management. Uh, but I've also headed a program which was called Youth Build. One of the programs that I was so privileged to be a part of, taking young people that had dropped out of school and who was on their way going nowhere. And um, we uh, would enroll them into a uh, GED program and also teach them uh, some job training skills, uh, leadership skills, carpentry skills. And the end result was that we wanted to help them finish their GED, 
get trained for a job, and we paid them all the while in doing this. We had a conference in uh, Washington, D.C., and uh, the theme of that conference is something that I thought about, and I want to adapt that for our message on tonight. But we use the words from Gandhi to uh, sort, of, sort of paste our theme for the conference. And he simply said this, that we must be the change that we want to see in the world. We must be the change we want to see in the world. Like most in the country today, I'm deeply engaged in the current Democratic primary race between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. The fact that 44 years after the historic signing of the 1964 Civil Rights Act that outlawed discrimination against African Americans and, and also 30 some odd years since the 1970s women's liberation movement, we now have a black and a woman fighting for the Democratic nomination for the presidency of the United States of America. We are living through an historic time. Whether you are Democratic, whether you are Republican, whether you are independent, or whatever you call yourself, whether you are part of Nader's Raiders, this is a wonderful time to observe and be a part of the political process that is taking place. But I want to say that our country is changing. Our country is changing. Last night, I, I, I wanted to say something I didn't. I was a little tired, and I want to make sure I didn't say anything to offend. I'm very careful in that regard. But I looked out, and I was very pleased to see so many African-American participants in the service. You see, when I was here 20-some-odd years ago, we didn't have that, that many. And there's not a whole lot today. I realize the population in Colorado Springs is probably only about 3% African-American. But uh, there were two of us out of my graduating class that were African-Americans who graduated, and that was myself and my good friend, John Lopes, that graduated. And I remember looking around many days and feeling so isolated because I didn't see folk like me. It wasn't because I had a problem with Caucasians or Hispanic or anybody else, but I like to see folk that look like me, okay? I, I, I don't think anything's wrong with that. Now, I love everybody but I want to see a few folk that look like me, that talk like me, that, that identified with my experience. And so I caution the church today that we must be careful that we do not allow the secular world to, to blaze a trail that should have been blazed by the church long ago. When I look at our church, when I look at our, our hierarchy and our structure and I look all the way up to our general superintendents and I think they're godly men and I think we have great men in leadership positions but I look at the, la the lack of diversity that we have now we do have our first woman general superintendent I think that's wonderful but I can't wait to see the day that we have a person of color that makes it all the way to the general superintendency Amen. I just happen to believe that we've got enough saved and sanctified, Holy Ghost-filled people who are of color that we can find somebody that meets the qualifications to be general superintendent. Amen. 
When I lived in Memphis a few years ago, I, you know there's a lot of history there in terms of the uh, civil rights movement. Dr. King was killed there. Uh, my, my DS, when I left the uh, state where I was at, he sort of tried to scare me out of going there. He said, Charles, do you really want to go to Memphis? He said, you know what they did to Dr. King there, don't you? And I just laughed at him and I said, he was making a joke. I said, I'm not worried about any of that. I'm going there because that's where God has called me. But I reflect, I reflect on the words that Dr. King stated in his 1963 speech delivered on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in the March on Washington. He said, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at a table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a desert state, sweltering with the heat of injustice and oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. It's been almost 40 years since we have heard that. Well, it's been about 40 years since he uttered that speech. And we have achieved so many parts of that dream, but we're not there yet. We still got a lot of work to do. But when I look around, I tell you, I've got a lot of hope. I, I, I just believe that, that God's doing something great in America. Amen. I believe that this parable is a wonderful foundation of the principles that were taught and lived by Dr. King in his speech that he gave the night before he was martyred, that I see the, the promised land. And almost prophetic, he said, I may not get there with you. And the next day, he was killed on the steps, on the balcony there of the Lorraine Motel. Uh, just a little south of uh, downtown Memphis. And I went and stood right there where he was standing, and you could still see the blood, dry blood, that was on the pavement where Dr. King stood at. And he said in that speech, he said that we need to be careful. He said, uh, uh, in referring to this parable, he urged his audience he said, let us develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. Dangerous unselfishness. You see, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho has many twists and turns and is oftentimes dangerous. But I would invite you this evening to be a member of the Jerusalem to Jericho Road Improvement Association. You see, if you're going to join this association, there are some prerequisites you must meet. You all are aware of prerequisites. You are college students, and you know that in order to take certain upper-level classes, you have to meet the prerequisites. You have to take some other courses. And so if we are going to be the ones that, that, uh, uh, that make the change in the world, the change in the church, there are some prerequisites we must meet. I see four steps here, and I hope I have time to cover them all. If not, you just excuse me. Uh, you must first acknowledge that we need change. You must also be the change that we wish to see. 
Number three, your heart must be touched by the hand of God. And then finally, you must be willing to go forth and make a difference. You see, you first must acknowledge that there's a need for a change. Some years ago, I remember when I was in my coursework on drug and alcohol addiction at Indiana University, I visited an AA meeting, and I learned that one of the steps to a person overcoming alcoholism, and also the NA meeting and, and other meetings that they were helping people overcome addiction, that the first thing the person had to do in order to get help is to admit that they were sick. Okay, we can't go around and, and, and use the ostrich move and just stick our heads down in the ground and act like we don't need to make any change. We've got to be willing to stand up and say that we've got to make some changes. Is that right? Uh, I, I, I think, you know, I've dealt with a lot of people with addictions. I've dealt with the crackhead, the gambler, the pimp, the prostitute. But I, I say to them all that if you are going to make any kind of change, you first got to admit that something is wrong with what you are doing. You know, so many men and women, and even now I spend most of my time, I wish I had taken more counseling courses here at, at Bible College. I didn't. I took what was required, but when I left here and, and I continued on in my undergraduate program, I took a lot of classes in sociology and psychology and counseling, and they came in handy because I spend the, the lion's share of my time uh, counseling with individuals and with couples that, that are, are struggling with, with issues in life and looking for answers and looking for a way out. And I say to them all that, that you've got to be tired of your lifestyle, but you've got to admit that what you're doing is wrong. And you've got to be sick and tired of getting sick and tired if you are really going to make a change. Is that right? Several years ago, in my first pastorate, my eyes were open to the realities of the problems that were experienced by my parishioners. I remember on one Sunday morning that I asked them to turn to a certain page in the hymn book. I don't know, one of my favorite hymns, 137. We'll understand it better by and by in that hymn book. And uh, I remember uh, uh, one of the guys just sort of looked at me funny, and he looked, you know, and, and after, after service, he began to talk to me. And, and only then did I realize that the reason he wasn't singing was not because he didn't like the song, it was not because he didn't like the lyrics, but because he was ill literate because he could not read and, and then I began to ask it never occurred to me that that it, it, in 1983 1984 that there were folk walking around who was 20 some odd 30 some odd years of age that could not read and and when I found that to be the case then I found out that he wasn't the only one that I have folks sitting out there and I had you know I had made some assumptions about them that were ill-founded that were wrong and I began to, to rethink my approach to ministry because you, it, with, all, with, with all the good things that I, that, I, that, I, that I gleaned from my time here at the Bible College, the one thing that I think that it did not adequately prepare me for was to go into an urban setting and, and, and minister to people that were hurting, people that, 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 that were disenfranchised, people that, that somehow had fallen off the wagon. And, and I, I really, I don't think I was really prepared for that. The model of ministry that I, I learned, it, it, it was more Anglo, it was more middle class, it was more, uh, you, you know, mainstream folk. But these were people who were of the, at the bottom of the socioeconomic scale, and, and I wasn't quite ready. And, and you know what I realized? That in order to effectively minister to these people, that, that God needed to change my heart. 
Okay, he needed to change my heart, that I realized that, that what I had been taught and, and what I had learned was not sufficient, that I had to go a little bit further. And, you know, part of me, you know, I looked at them and part of me wanted to blame them. You know, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to read. There's no reason why you shouldn't have finished school. There's no reason. But listen here, when I began to hear their life experiences, I had to repent. When I hear of a young man who, who, whose father was put in jail, whose mother was on the streets in prostitution, and, and he, was, he went from house to house trying to find a place to sleep and never really had a home, and then to find out that that young man fell under the influence of a wrong crowd and never finished school and ended up in the criminal justice system, and then I realized that he never really had a chance because he did not have the foundation under him that I had under me, that so many of you had under you, and I began to realize that it wasn't so much his fault. I thought, God, this is not what I signed up for. But I tell you what, I thought, God, you dropped me off at the wrong address. <laughs> this is not the scenario that I thought I was going to deal with when I left Bible college. But I want to tell you, God knew what he was doing. Yeah. You want to know what I'm so glad about? God never calls a woman or a man to do a job that he is not ready and willing to give them the necessary tools and the resources in which they need to complete that job. That God had prepared me, God had given me everything that I would need to be able to minister effectively in the neighborhood in which he had called me. I tell you, I needed to make a change. And I did. I made a change. I, I changed my attitude. I changed my whole way of thinking. I began to, to, to try to look at them in a way to help them and, and to engage them and try to get them back involved in the educational process and getting, uh, going back to school and, and seeking higher education and, and becoming a part of their community and not just be those who are on the outside, those who have fallen to the bottom, those who, who would resort to violence and those who would resort to all kinds of, of mischievous and unlawful behavior in order to make ends meet. But I said, you can still be competitive. You can still actualize the American dream. And so somehow my, my, my ideal of, of serving God and being saved and spirit-filled, but then also them, them attaining a good, solid education, somehow I developed two passions. And I tell people that, that I have a passion for God, but I also have a passion for education. I have a passion for higher learning because I believe that when you marry those two together, that, that, that you have the dynamic duel, that you have the two things that will carry you as high as you can go in life. Know God and, and know as much as you can about the world in which you live. I tell you, not only that, but it prompted me as I began to talk to so many of my parishioners about going back to school and and developing themselves, all of a sudden I got a sense of urgency and I got a conviction and decided I need to go back. And so I went back to other institutions and began to, to seek uh, more classes, more information, more knowledge, because I wanted to be more effective in the ministry. I really didn't go with the idea of I want this degree or that degree, but I went with the idea that I want to be a more effective pastor, a more effective leader. But in the process, I became a more effective person, a more well-rounded person. And I think when I look back at it now, that's what God wanted me to be. I tell you, uh, about 10 years later, God dropped me off in the ghetto of, of Memphis, Tennessee, to minister to a group of hurting folks.
See, my second point I would make to you is you must be the change that you wish to see in the world. Uh, my first pastor was in a smaller town, and I didn't see, you know, I saw some issues, and I talked to you about the illiteracy and things of that nature. There was a lot of, you know, drug addiction, but uh, we didn't have a, a, a ghetto, so to speak, in that town. There was a poor section of town, but there was not a ghetto. But when we went to Memphis, just around the corner, I can remember the first day I went in there to interview, and they came to pick me up and drove me down to the church, and I saw just about maybe one block uh, south and a couple of blocks east, roughly four blocks from the church, there were the women of the night walking up and down the sidewalk. There were projects all around us within a three-mile radius. There were housing complexes that housed probably five to 10,000 10, people. And they were a, a haven of drug addiction, prostitution, uh, gang banging, you name it, they had it. And our church was sitting right there in the midst. Church wasn't doing as well as it could do. And, in my first month there, it didn't take me long to figure out what was wrong because we were running a, a, a church set up under the Anglo model of ministry in the midst of the ghetto, and it didn't work. It just didn't work. You see, and then I began to learn that, that I needed to contextualize my education and, the, and, and all the information that I learned here and take it into a neighborhood that, that was a little bit different. Uh, than, uh, than I had heard about in school. And I would have to contextualize it and go in there and make a difference. My first week in town, I can remember pulling up to a light. And all of a sudden, this guy who was dressed very poorly and looked like a beggar or something came up and started washing my window, my windshield. I got a little nervous. I, I, that had never happened to me before, you know. And then after he washed it, you know, I, hey, you don't need to do that. He washed it. Then he, you know, can you give me a few dollars? Then I've figured out it was a hustle. You know, I, I wasn't accustomed to that. So I soon realized that the problems that were not as visible in my first ministry were glaring in my second ministry. Crack house, drugs, prostitution, gangs, violence, you name it. So in our church, we did some innovative things to begin to reach and minister to these hurting people. We started something that we called the Sunday School Academic Excellence Program, where we began to reward children in our Sunday school that, uh, that uh, would uh, display academic excellence. And how did we define that? First of all, children who made the honor roll, they were recognized. We gave them a certificate, and we gave them a $100 bill just to say, hey, we are proud of you, and we made a big deal over them. The second thing is those who sowed significant improvement academically, we recognize them. In other words, if you have been a D student and you raise your GPA from a 1.0 to a 2.5, we thought that was something that should be celebrated and so we recognize them also. And the criteria to be a part of that program is that they had to attend Sunday school so many times. They had to be in there at least uh, out of 12 weeks or the 16-week grading period. They could miss no more than one Sunday school session. And they had to bring us their report cards so that we could make sure that their grades were legitimate. And I tell you, it, it, it caught on. 
I began to see young people get excited about education. Well, it helps if somebody hands you a $100 bill. You can get real excited real quick, can't you? I tell you. So we paired up with another ministry. We also started offering tutoring at, at the church, and we started uh, offering different kinds of programs. We had a, feed, uh, a feeding program that we were a part of. We gave out clothes, and we did all kinds of things. And I tell you that we began to, to, to do ministry in ways that I had never conceived, but I'm sure that somebody was doing it. I just didn't know it. I didn't sign up for this. This was not my model. This was not my vision of ministry when I came to Bible college. But I tell you that, that when I saw the need and God moved in my heart in such a way, I realized that this is what I needed to do. And I could tell you some success stories, but boy, I would be all night. But I want to tell you one success story about one young man. I'm not going to call his name. I'm just going to give him a name. I have a brother named Gregory, so I'll use the name Gregory. But Gregory grew up without a father in his home. He was raised by a single-parent mother who had not graduated from high school, and she was on welfare. He grew up in the roughest part of town. He grew up in a school that said he had no chance. But one thing about Gregory, Gregory had ability, and he had an intellect that was out of this world. Gregory was bringing his report cards in ever since he was in sixth, seventh grade. He brought in his report cards. I never saw him with a grade under 90 or 91. And about time he got into high school and I was talking with him about college, he didn't think it was possible to go to college because he was poor. His mother was on welfare. His father had left the family. And mother said, there's no way he can go to college. And I said, do you realize that with your grade point average, you have a 4.0 GPA, that all you have to do is send out some applications, apply to some colleges, and they will be glad to write you a ticket and give you a full scholarship. They would love to have you as part of their institution. Institution. And I'm happy to say that the next fall, he enrolled in college on a full academic scholarship. This was a young man that, that statistics said that he had no chance. But I want to tell you, just because you come up in the ghetto doesn't mean that uh, you have no hope. I, t I, I told another group, I said, the ghetto is simply an acronym, a place where God can get a hold of you. That's all it is. It doesn't mean that you don't have a chance. I tell you, you have a chance. You just have to put your mind to it. You just have to work hard enough. And I tell you, we've got to make some changes. We've got to change the way we view folk. We've got people that are afraid to go into the inner city and minister because they're afraid. They're frightened. But you know, one of, the, one, of the, one of the things that happened on the day of Pentecost, that when the apostles got filled with the Holy Spirit, the Bible says they began to speak with boldness. Fear left them. I don't see how folk that say they have a holiness message, people that say they love God, people that say, I know God, I have the second work of grace in my heart and in my life. How can we dare say that we are afraid to go in and tackle the problems? If God has given us the message, we've got to go to every nook and cranny. We've got to go into every corridor of society and take the message of holiness and let them know that there is hope for you today. I thank God for that. In this parable, the priest was able to simply walk by. Maybe he was preoccupied with his religious work and his ceremony. 
more than the welfare of this hurting man. Maybe he had to get to his parish for noon prayer. We get caught up in our religiosity. We get caught up in doing religious things. And we forget that there are folk out there who are hurting, who have been hurt and disenfranchised. You know, we walk by and we see folk laying there hurt and we think, oh, it's something they did. Uh, you know, surely if that person had, had better character, if they had some integrity, if it was this or that, when really we don't know their experience. I love to tell people that I was born, and I, I, I can say this, that I was born in the same year that, that Barack Obama was born. I was born in what we now call the ghetto. I was born in the housing project, literally, born in the housing project. My mother didn't make it out. I was born there. I was delivered by the, the friend of a neighbor. I was born right there in the project. But let me tell you, it's not so much where you start, but it's where you finish. Amen. I had a vision and I had a dream. And it was, it, it, it was instilled in me from a, from a child that I can go on and do something and make something out of my life. It didn't matter to me that I started out in the ghetto because I moved from the ghetto and our family moved up and we moved into what was the middle class neighborhood and I grew up mainly in the middle class lifestyle. And to me, college was not something that, that was a far reach, but college was something that I knew that I was going. I just knew that I had to be the best person that I could be and something inside of me was driving me to pursue greatness. I tell you, if that priest had looked over there and considered that maybe that man laying in the gutter might be somebody great. Amen. Maybe if it had been, he had been related to someone that he knew, he might have stopped. In the same way, the Levite who looked over and saw the man, but he was more occupied with making it safely to his destination instead of making a difference. Maybe he was afraid he didn't want to get robbed himself. Maybe he didn't want to waste his precious time caring for this man. Maybe he looked at this man and thought, like so many of us have done before, or I have done, I can't speak for you, that he's in this condition because of his own fault. I want to tell you something. We need to learn that we can't always blame the victim. And you know what else I've learned in my years of ministry? Let's not judge the condition, but let's meet the needs. Let's just meet needs. Not judge conditions, but meet needs. God has called me to help meet needs of people, hurting people. The truth of the matter is that we might all pass by unless we experience the real transforming power of the Holy Spirit. We must be participators in the deeper crisis of entire sanctification, where the heart is cleansed from all sin and the believer is brought into a state of full devotion to God. I tell you, when God gets a hold of you, I tell you, you start having compassion for people. When God gets a hold of you, you can look down into the ghetto, you can look at the drug addicts, you can look at the potheads, you can look at the crackheads, you can look at the prostitutes, and you can think, had it not been for the goodness of God, 
had it not been for God's mercy. Listen here, I didn't have a chance to say whose family I would be born into. I didn't have an opportunity to dictate what my color would be. I had no choice in the matter. I was born based on what God said. This was at the will and the providence of God. And sometimes we look at people and we need to understand that unless it had been for the grace of God at work in our lives and God had placed us in the families where he put us, there might be you and I. There might be one of us laying in the gutter, laying there with our head bleeding, damaged, and everybody that should be helping us walks by us because they don't see us. And that's a crime, I tell you, the crime of the sanctified. When you can look at somebody that is hurting, you can look at somebody that is bleeding, you can look at somebody that is desperate and walk right by them and act as if it has nothing to do with you. God help us today. Help us today. We must be the change. I want to tell you, though, my final point is that we got to go and be difference makers. It's no coincidence that the half-breed, ostracized Samaritan was the one who stopped by. Although his life had been no picnic itself, he was willing to sacrifice his time, his money, and his energy, his resources, to help this man who was in a marginalized condition. I tell you, some of you will leave here this year, some next year, some in following years, but I want to tell you, go out and be difference makers. I want to tell you to go out and be the change that you want to see. I want to tell you to go out and change the church. Change the church. Oh, the church is changing, and I love the church. Don't get me wrong. I love the church of the Nazarene. If I could choose to be any, in any church in all of the United States of America, if I could choose all over again and start my ministry affairs, I would still choose to be right here in the church of the Nazarene. But I want to tell you today that I want to see us continue to grow and continue to develop and continue to reach out. We are in 150. 152 nations and world areas I tell you we're reaching out overseas but let's not forget that there are folk that are laying in the gutter right here under our noses let's not step over them and act like they don't exist let's reach down and help them also I will conclude tonight I think I've gone over y'all have to forgive me I'm starting to feel like preaching Oh, if I was in my home church, I'd just be warming up about now. <laughs> one, of, one of my Anglo friends came to me and he said, Charles, I have such a hard time preaching in your church. He said, because by the time you put me up to preach in my church, we're normally sitting down and my folk are ready to go. And I'm so afraid that I'm going to lose the audience. I said, listen, man, just get up there and let it fly. Don't worry about it. Don't watch the clock. I said, we come to have church. We don't come here to look pretty. We don't come here to look cute. We don't come here to show our latest style, but we come to worship God. And if you will have them here to 2 o'clock, I tell you, they're still going to be standing up and praising God. Just make sure you got a message when you get up there and preach. Something that will move them. Something that will challenge them. Something that will make them look inside of their heart and say, Lord, what must I do to be a better person? Lord, what must I do to live and be the kind of individual you want me to be I said get up and preach so as I close I want to share a quote from John Brown Watson 
And he said this, the end of education is to know God and the laws and purpose of his universe and to reconcile one's life to those laws. The first aim of a good college is not to teach books, but the meaning and purpose of life. Hard study and the learning of books are only means to these ends. We develop power and courage and determination and we go out to achieve wisdom, truth, and justice. If we do not come to this, then the cost of our schooling is wasted. God bless you. God keep you. I'm going to turn it over to Okay, so let me find my way to what we do next here. I uh, anticipated some about where Pastor Tillman's message was going, so I tried to recreate some things, so I need the second verse. Uh, we know the song, but typically it's just about us. So I, I want us to see this in a new way. So we'll sing it a couple of times. <laughs> 